Okay, hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word. Uh, if you could, please open up to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to continue our study of the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 2 and 6. We've been looking at the qualifications of an overseer over the past several weeks, and just kind of breaking down different ones, going one, two, or three at a time. Uh, we've looked at... Um, How an overseer needs to be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, respectable, well thought of by outsiders, hospitable, not violent, gentle, and not quarrelsome. And this week we're going to look at some that don't necessarily apply to all Christians. One thing we've discussed is how all these other qualifications are things that we ought to be doing anyway. But it needs to especially be true of overseers, of pastors. But these that I'm going to mention today, a couple of them really aren't expected of all Christians. And and I'll have a personal story with that here in just a little bit. But the qualifications we'll look at today, an overseer needs to be able to teach, not a recent convert, and not puffed up with conceit. So uh, turn your attention to verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and then we have our new one for this week, able to teach. So I'm going to briefly look over the commands from Paul to teach in each of these pastoral epistles. If you look at 1 Timothy, the next book is 2 Timothy, the next book is Titus. Those are called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. There's three of them. And there are letters that were written specifically to pastors in the early church. So Paul wrote them to them saying, here's how you need to conduct the church. Here's how things should function in the church. So I looked at all three of these pastoral epistles trying to get an overview of this idea of an overseer being able to teach. And I had so much material, I had to scrap a lot of it and narrow it down so that we're not going to be here for hours. So first, I want to read off. Every example that I could see in these pastoral epistles where Paul commanded for them to teach. I'm just going to read them. If you want to write down the references and look at them later, you can. I'm just going to read all of them here. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 5-7. Command these things. 6-2. Teach and urge these things. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1-2. through 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Titus 2.1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So in these three pastoral epistles, you see this repeated phrase. He's giving the instructions for the church. Then he tells Timothy and Titus, teach these things. When you go into the church, teach the church these things. Urge them to do these things. Command them to do these things. So all of this makes this point for pastors. Pastors must be able to teach because 
The teaching of God's word is commanded. The pastor's responsibility is to teach the flock. That is how we supply food to the flock is through the teaching of God's word. Therefore, a pastor needs to have time to prepare to teach. A pastor needs to be trained to teach. A pastor needs to be able to teach, needs to know what to teach, needs to know what not to teach. There's a lot of things that go into that. So next I looked, and I'm just going to read one scripture to you for this one, but I looked at, well, what is it exactly that you're commanded to teach in these epistles? And I'm going to read to you Titus 1.9. It's a really good summary of everything that I found for time's sake. Titus 1.9 says this. Talking about the pastor, it's the qualifications for an overseer in Titus. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And there's two things that happens. He needs to be able to give instruction But then he also needs to be able to correct other instruction that's opposed to sound doctrine. So kind of updating uh, the sentence that I just gave you about pastors being able to teach. Pastors must be able to teach because the teaching and protection of the sound doctrine of God's word is commanded. So pastors aren't just to teach. They are to teach sound doctrine from God's word. I listened to a sermon today from a church in North Louisiana for a friend. And I'm listening to this sermon, and the guy was out of John chapter 14. He, they're also preaching through John, just a little bit differently than we are. And he's in John 14, and he's teaching, and I'm following along in the scripture, and I can't help but notice he's making all of these points, and I'm not seeing anything in the scripture that he's teaching that makes those points. Now, is what he said true? Yes, I think it's absolutely true. Is what he said helpful? Yes, I think it's helpful. If the church followed that teaching, would they be healthier than another church that doesn't? Absolutely they would. But one thing that was missing from that was anything from the scriptures that he was teaching from. It was a jumping off point into here's how we need to live morally among other people so that they know that we're Christians, which is good and true. It's good and true. But walking away from that regular diet of teaching, a pastor needs to ask the question, is this going to promote sound doctrine in my church that leads to godly living? Because what's going to happen when that pastor's not there anymore to tell people what they ought to do? What's the foundation that they're going to fall back on? If there is no foundation in God's word, then they will wander. And this happens in a lot of our churches where the pastor is the one feeding the congregation. But really what he does is he chews up the food for them and then gives it to them to digest. And then when he leaves, they don't know how to do that for themselves. So they leave. They find another church. Or they Measure every other pastor and say, well, it's just not quite like this guy. And there's a real danger to that. So the pastor, in his teaching, he's not just teaching how to live. He's not just teaching good principles for a peaceful life. He's not just teaching how to make every day a Friday. He's not just teaching those things. He is teaching the trustworthy word and giving instruction and sound doctrine 
so that he can rebuke those who contradict it. So next I looked through and I asked the next question. I said, okay, well, why do we see the command to teach? And I want to read 1 Timothy 4.1 to you. It says, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And 317, 2 Timothy 3.17, it's talking about scripture. And it says that it's given that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So our final kind of statement, putting it all together, pastors must be able to teach because the teaching and protection of sound doctrine is commanded and it produces biblical faith and good works in the church. So the church, as they sit under sound teaching, they understand this is what it means to be a Christian biblically as they listen to the pastor teach. And then they understand, okay, so this is what I do with what I've just learned. Hopefully now you can see the distinction between these two ideas. One idea says this is who you are and this is what should come from that. And as we learn about who we are, good works flow naturally from that. The other model says let me just tell you how to live because it's easier. It will be less thinking on your part. I'm just going to tell you what to do. And it really relies on the pastor being right in those assertions. That's not the biblical model of teaching. The pastor is not just to tell you how to live. The pastor is to present the word to you so that you can see what biblical Christianity is. And then the Holy Spirit works in you to bring those things out in the fruits in your life. That is this able to teach. That's what a pastor needs to be able to do. We could keep going, and I I really scrapped a lot of scriptures here to keep from bogging this down. But you can go through and look at yourself at all the instances of teaching, and it's overwhelming. Um, So I don't want to keep going and looking at the different ways to teach, um, because this is just a qualification. The pastor needs to be able to teach. So there's a natural question that comes up here. 1 Timothy 5.17 says this, and we'll get to this way, way later down the road, but I want to at least address it now. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Let the elders, same thing as overseers, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the implication here is that there's some elders who don't labor in preaching and teaching. So why would a qualification for an overseer be to teach If they don't all teach, why would they need to do that? Great question, and I've got two reasons here. Number one, an overseer needs to be able to teach, even if they're not regularly teaching, in order to protect the doctrine of the church. We've already looked at this a little bit earlier. You can't correct what you don't know is wrong. If you don't recognize there's a problem, you're not going to know how to fix it. If an overseer is able to teach, then he'll also be able to recognize teaching that is mixed with error. But if an overseer can't teach, he's a great manager. He's a great leader. He knows how to spur people on to action. But he doesn't know how to teach because he's just not as knowledgeable there. He's not going to notice when things aren't structured correctly. And the building may go up quickly. But then whenever these storms 
start to hit the church and that foundation wasn't laid properly because he just didn't know. It's going to cause damage in the long run. Those of you that have done construction work, you know. Or if you've built your own barn and you've, you, know, you didn't square things properly, well, it'll still go up easily at first. But then once it all comes together and things aren't lining up, you really wish, man, I wish I'd have done it right at the very beginning. It's those things that the pastor needs to know about to be able to correct. The simple fact is this. The teachers in the church need accountability, including pastors. I need accountability. I need people who are trained theologically to hold me accountable so that when I get up in the pulpit on Sunday morning or if I step up here right now to teach, I can't just say whatever I want to say and get away with it. We need accountability for the teaching in the church. Some elders don't preach and teach. They oversee the church by monitoring what's being taught. And this is something I think our church actually needs. Lord willing, hopefully, not because I have taught anything in error. But we need overseers, pastors, elders in this church whose responsibility is not to teach, but to help manage the church. And part of that management being listening on Wednesday nights and Sundays and making sure that the teaching goes well. There's some churches. There's one up in uh, – this one's in D.C. This is Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Mark Devers, the pastor of this church. And he – and I, this, this is crazy. I've never heard of anything like this before. He will preach his sermon to the elders of his church on Saturday night before he preaches in church on Sunday morning. And he'll say, brothers – and he, he won't give the – He'll give the kind of Cliff Notes version, but he'll say, brothers, is there anything that I need to change or correct? And every now and then they'll come back and they'll say, uh, actually, I don't know how I feel about this. I'll say, OK, let's talk about that. That's a healthy thing for a church. You never want a church where there is one guy who has the sole responsibility of what's going to happen. Because maybe one guy can handle that well, but what about the next guy that comes in? What if he doesn't handle that well? There needs to be a balance of power and some accountability in the church. And it should say something for the sole guy right now to be saying that. Okay. Number two, two reasons that not every overseer labors in preaching and teaching. Number one. Um, or why they need to be able to teach even though they don't do that. Number one, to protect the doctrine of the church. Number two. In order to correct the church. So this is the idea of a rebuke. It is to verbally address something that's wrong so that you can correct it. Okay, But it doesn't always have to be a rebuke. Sometimes the correction in a church means guiding the church away from error by changing the direction that it's headed. And an overseer who's able to teach will be able to accurately say, this is the way biblically that the church needs to head, where someone else who isn't able to teach may not be able to verbalize that. And I'm going to give you an example of this. Imagine a church looking for a student pastor or a youth minister. I've been in this process because I have been in that ministry. So in the interview process, the question is asked, what do you believe about the Bible? Okay. The candidate says... I believe the Bible is the infallible word of God. That sounds pretty good, right? 
someone who may not be trained would say, well, that that's excellent. This is the guy we need. Let me tell you what a pastor would say. Something's not quite right here. Do you hold to the Baptist faith and message when it comes to the infallibility of Scripture? Well, I believe the Bible is infallible. I don't think it's capable of erring. A candidate can say the Bible is infallible, and they can also say the Bible has errors in it at the same time. And people are saying that today. I have a book in my office right now from a very prominent Christian teacher who says the Bible is infallible and the Bible has errors. A pastor knows because he's been reading all these boring theology books that infallibility and inerrancy are both important when it comes to that. I want to hear a candidate say it's infallible and it's inerrant. Because if they just say it's infallible, I know they're trying to avoid they're trying to avoid part of this question. The regular person who's not able to teach and hasn't studied on those things might not catch that. And it's understandable that you wouldn't. That's totally understandable. Someone who is able to teach should catch that. They will catch that. I've been to a church where the interview process, I mean, it was well-meaning, godly people. They didn't really ask any theology questions. I think I'm pretty solid on theology, so I think it worked out okay. But the concern is, okay, well, where's the corrective, where's the guiding the ship? Are we just putting people and just kind of blindly, okay, here's who we elected, have fun. Or are the pastors of the church coming alongside them and saying, let me help guide you in the direction we ought to go. That is part of this. An overseer or a pastor doesn't need to be able to teach just to preach. Maybe it's to guide the ministries of the church. Hey, here's a helpful way to pursue this candidate. Or here's a helpful direction for our church to go. The pastor especially needs to be studied up on those things. So overseeing the church requires being well-informed and able to instruct the church when it's in danger of harm or error. If you don't know what a healthy church looks like or you can't guide others towards it, you can't effectively oversee the church. So the next qualification that we're going to look at, it's uh, further down in verse 6. It says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So there's actually two qualifications here in one, sort of. I've split them up into two. The first qualification is, must not be a recent convert. That's obvious in the text. The second one, and I think it's a a separate qualification that's just related, is the pastor must not be conceited or puffed up with conceit. This one's kind of implied, but I think it's still its own qualification. Titus I believe is the one that has it as its own qualification. And you'll see later in 1 Timothy where there's some who would depart from the faith and they're puffed up with conceit. So I think that though it's implied here, it should still be its own qualification. So first we're going to look at recent convert. There's a couple of dangers with being a recent convert and going into pastoral ministry. The first danger is you'll become conceited. We saw that in this verse right here. They shouldn't be a recent convert because it might be puffed up with conceit. If someone's a recent convert and they're called into the position of pastor, there's a huge risk of spiritual pride that comes with that. The candidate might be tempted to think, well, there's something really special in me if I'm this young and able to get into this position. 
I've only been a Christian for, what, six months, and they're already asking me to be a pastor. Wow. There's a risk of spiritual pride with that. Okay? But then there's a second danger with a candidate being a recent convert, and that's this. The candidate might be a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I'm going to give you two examples of why I think this might be true. First one, they're both in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 in the Sermon on the Mount. You should be very familiar with this text. Jesus says this. Beware of false prophets. This is Matthew 7, 15 through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will, be rec- you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the image here is that on the outside, someone might look one way, but on the inside, there's something else. They look like a sheep on the outside, but they're not actually a sheep. When Halloween, when Halloween rolls around, you see kids walking up and down the streets, and they're wearing these costumes, and there's Iron Man, and there's another Iron Man, and there's another Iron Man. None of them are Iron Man. They may want to be Iron Man. They're not. Who are they? It's what's underneath the costume. And in the same way, there might be someone, if they're a recent convert, that they look initially like a sheep, but they're not a sheep. And then you call them into the role of pastor, and now you're really in trouble. That's the first danger here. How do you recognize what's on the inside? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. The problem with the recent convert is enough time hasn't passed to know what kind of fruit's going to be produced. Me and Stacy have a tree in our yard right now that someone gifted us into Ritter before we left. We don't take care of plants. We don't know what this is. I thought we'd kill it by now. It's still alive. It's a miracle. It's some kind of a citrus tree, and it started growing some fruit on it. We've had it for months. I still don't know what kind of tree this is. I know it's producing some kind of citrus, and I thought, oh, it's green. It must be a lime. Okay, great. Wonderful. Well, then it starts turning yellow. I'm like, oh, must be a lemon. Okay, great. Well, then we plugged it on the app, and it says a dwarf orange. I'm like, I don't know. Let's just wait and see when it – it takes time. I didn't know within a month what that thing was going to be. I still don't know. And it's the same thing with someone who's going to be a pastoral candidate. If they just became a Christian, you don't really know if they're really a Christian or not. There hadn't been enough time to see the fruit. Okay, So that's the first danger. The second danger here is related in Matthew, a wolf in sheep's clothing, in Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. This is a parable that Jesus gives. Again, very famous. You'll be familiar with this one. I'm going to read Jesus' explanation of the parable. It's the parable of the seed that's sown. I'm going to start in Matthew 13, verse 18, and I'm going to go down through 23. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word 
and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So there's four scenarios here, and in three of the four scenarios, a plant grows. The only exception is the first one on the path. A plant doesn't actually grow. The seed's eaten up. But in every other scenario, a plant starts to grow. Well, in the second scenario, yeah, the plant sprung up quickly. But then whenever those storms came, it didn't bear fruit. It was destroyed. In the third scenario, plant grew up among the thorns, but it's choked out and it isn't provided the nutrients it needs to bear fruit and it doesn't bear fruit. It's only in that last one where the plant grows and it's healthy and how do you know? It bears fruit. When there's not enough time in a candidate's Christian life to gauge his faith... You are rolling the dice when it comes to the care of the church. You're just hoping, I hope it's real. Man, it looks good. hope it is. It may be real. And that candidate may do well. They may have biblical wisdom and knowledge and know how to lead and oversee. But man, you took a really big gamble on that one. That's why this qualification is here. And I'm going to give you an example of this, a sad example of this. is with a man named Joshua Harris. How many of you know who Joshua Harris is? Just out of curiosity. Okay. Joshua Harris wrote a book when he was 21 years old that sold over 1 million copies. Incredibly impressive. You may have heard of the name of this book. It's called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. How many of you have heard of that book? Okay. i got at least one. So very famous book. And he wrote it as a 21-year-old basically saying, as a Christian, I think that we've been approaching dating all wrong. I think that we're training ourselves for divorce in the way that we date in high school. And I think that we need to approach it differently. And so I actually really like the thesis kind of of the book. I think it makes a lot of sense. But he wrote this book, and it was wildly popular. This was in 1997. He's 21 years old. I kissed dating goodbye. That same year, he was asked to come on staff at a megachurch in Maryland as a pastoral intern underneath a man who I think is uh, very godly and um, very careful about theology and his teaching. And since this time, what's happened in this church is there's been this. You know, the big thing came out with the Houston Chronicle with all the sexual abuse cases in the churches. Well, their church got hit with this. And this man got hit with this. And so a lot of things have unfolded in the church. And what happened over time was Joshua Harris coming into this church. He comes in in 1997 as an intern, 21 years old. In 2004, he becomes the senior pastor. 
This other guy left. He's the man. He's 28 years old at this point. He didn't go to seminary until 2015. That's 11 years later. He's been the pastor of a megachurch for 11 years. Didn't go to seminary. In 2019, he renounced his faith. I'm not a Christian. He leaves the church in 2015. I'm going to go to seminary. I should have done this at the beginning. Goes to seminary. Comes back later and says, I'm sorry I ever wrote that original book. It was hurtful to the LGBT community. I'm sorry I did that. Comes back a year later. Me and my wife are struggling. We're growing apart. They divorce nine days after that. Here's what he said on his social media, 2019. The popular phase phrase for this is deconstruction. Talked about deconstructing his faith. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this. But I'm not there now. Now, to be fair, Joshua Harris wasn't technically a recent convert. But the point in all of this is that he was put on an evangelical pedestal at the age of 21 and was rapidly thrust into this pastoral internship. Brother, you got it. Whatever it is, you've got it. I don't know if pride crept into his heart. I don't know. But I know that if he's not a Christian now, he wasn't really a Christian then. Because Christianity is not a name tag. It is a new birth. You are born into a new creation of Christ. So he wasn't a Christian then. That's what this qualification is trying to protect against in part. It's very important. Very important. So the other part of this, that's just recent convert. The other part of this is conceit. The danger that he would be puffed up with conceit. The word conceit here, I looked it up, and there's a word picture definition. And it's the idea of something being shrouded in smoke, like unapproachable. Think about the Old Testament when they walk up to the mountain that God is on, and it thunders, and then it's just covered in smoke, and you feel like you can't approach the mountain. Someone who is conceited has painted themselves in that picture. You can't approach me. That's the kind of pride that it evokes. It's to think of yourself in a mighty way like that, which is exactly how Satan viewed himself. That's why you see it in that passage there that that was the condemnation of the devil. I'm going to read a passage in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, that talks about a time coming when people will be worldly, basically. And you see this same uh, phrase here. I think it's going to be helpful for us. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So here, the one who is puffed up with conceit, it says he understands nothing. But the danger is he thinks he does. He thinks he does understand something. So he teaches thinking that he's so smart, but he's causing destruction because he doesn't actually know. And look what happens. It says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. He believes himself to be right and is ready and willing to fight over words about it. What's the result? It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction. And it's all because of this prideful teaching. Maybe you know someone like that. Someone who, man, this person, they're always right. I want you to think about this person, whoever it is in your mind, Do any of these describe the environment that this person produces? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction. I would imagine it probably does. It comes with the territory. No one likes to be around someone that's always right. When I was growing up, me and my mom had a lot of friction because she thought she was always right, and I thought I was always right. And we still joke about it now. (laughs) She's still convinced she's always right. And when I'm talking with her, I'm still convinced I'm always right. And when I'm talking with Stacy, I'm never right. She is always wrong. I mean, she's always right. Uh, I'm dead now. Is she in here? Okay, I'm safe. She's always right. I'm always wrong. Okay, I, I get that. Totally cool with that. The point is, that creates this friction. And it ought not to be true of the pastor of the church. This man needs to be able to be told that he's wrong. Because if he is in error, he needs to... Correct it. So unlike being able to teach and being a recent convert, this threat of conceit applies to all of us. We all have something to learn always. All of us. Especially the pastors of the church. They are always learning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 2 says this. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you think you've got it all figured out, you don't. And you thinking that you have it all figured out, you're risking division in the church and this constant friction. I think that y'all probably know what that's like to some degree. This is something that we can all learn from. This doesn't mean that you can't be confident when you think you know something. It doesn't mean that you can't say that you're right about something. You're allowed to say those things and do those things. Rather, what it means is that we regularly acknowledge or confess or carry ourselves in such a way that we know other people know we might be wrong. I just might be wrong. We need to all have that general attitude. And this is a good reminder that there is no one who has perfect knowledge except for one. And he took on flesh and he came and died for us because we're just dumb. We think we know what we're doing, but we don't. We're like sheep 
kind of going our own way. But he's the good shepherd. And he guides his sheep through this. So whoever wields this book in this church better be able to teach and protect sound doctrine for the sake of the health of the church. Because this is how the Lord has purposed to guide us. So we better handle it rightly. I would encourage all of us to follow Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. He says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we're going to be confident about anything we think we know, let it be Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of those who believe and turn to him in faith and repentance. Amen? Amen. I'm going to read a passage for us in closing and then I'm going to pray. This is coming from 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start halfway through 17 and read 17 and 18. This is a charge to all of us from God's word. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have sent us godly men, experienced in the faith, knowledgeable in the scriptures, to be able to teach us sound doctrine according to the trustworthy word of God. Father, we believe that your word is perfect. That it gives life to our souls. That if we meditate on it day and night, that we'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. We believe that your word doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. It is infallible. It is incapable of erring, and it is inerrant. It is perfect. We thank you for it. We thank you that you humble us through your word. I thank you personally that when I come to your word, I am always learning something new as a reminder that I don't yet know as I think I do. Would you cultivate that humble attitude in us when we come to your word? Would you protect the teachers of our church from error? Would you help them to be able to rightly divide your word so that they don't teach error? Would you help all of us to be on the lookout for these things so that we can protect the church? Would you help us to grow in the knowledge of your son? Protect us from this spiritual pride? Make us into a people who love you and love others all for your glory. Most of all, God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent him to die in our place, bearing our punishment that we might live with you for eternity. Help us to live for him fully every day of our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.